0: Philippians chapter 4, but we've been focusing on last last week and, and probably this week and next week on spiritual stability, and um, uh, I think that in our society today, we admire people that have certain characteristics. We, we admire people who are able to stand strong in what they believe. Uh, we admire someone who stands true, or you might say stands up for what he or she believes, um, we we admire people who are um, firm in their thinking, that they can't be bought, uh, they can't be bribed, they can't be intimidated, um, they can't be softened up or, or defeated in any way. They're they're focused and they really know kind of where they're going in life, and they really want to um, let people know that, and they're not ashamed of that. They're unwavering, they're uncompromising, and I'm sure that all of us have worked with people that are just the opposite of that. The only thing they're interested in is, well, what do you want me to say? And I'll say it. And those kind of people are just kind of you know, you don't have a lot of respect for somebody like that. That's always going into the boss's office and the boss asks him questions. And he's not really telling him how he feels. He's just telling him what he wants to hear so we can get the promotion. Those kind of people may make it to the top, but they're not very well respected a lot of times. And a lot of times people... Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, you know what, I just respected this person was just very, just kind of almost in my face. They knew exactly what they wanted, and they communicated very clearly, and I really respected that. And, you know, so our society is, is one of such that we admire somebody like that. We look up to them, and there's, there's something about that kind of stability in somebody's life that we look at and we go, wow, uh, I wish, you know, I could be more like that. Um, but now, you, when you stop and you think, and that's just the world standard, that's the idea the world has. But when you stop and you 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 think of of Christ and you think of what He did, I mean, He would not compromise. He did not sell out. Um, he was a model of integrity. He was, um, you know, a model of somebody who couldn't be. Bought, bought at all. He, he was a model of somebody who wouldn't deviate even for a little sliver to the left or the right from the truth. He was always willing to go out and just communicate it clearly. And after all, we're called what? Christians. So we should kind of be focused on that and we want to identify with Christ and especially with this uncompromising, courageous kind of character that Christ had. We want to look at that and say, you know what? That's what we want to be like. Because that's what Paul is talking about here, likeness. And, you know, those of us who name the name of Christ as a Christian, there should be some form of stability in our lives. Just because that's who we're trying to emulate. We're trying to emulate Christ. And that's what the Bible says. There should be some kind of consistency, some kind of steadfastness, you might say. And that's really what, when you look at the New Testament, what we're encouraged to be. Uh, Repeatedly, over and over throughout the New Testament, Christians are called to what? Stand firm. You hear that over and over again. In a number of different ways and in different terms. We're, we're called not to be tossed around like the waves of the sea. We're called not to doubt or be unstable like the waves of the sea tossed to and fro, the Bible says. Uh, we're, we're called to be firm, to stand firm in our faith. A number of times the Bible tells us in the New Testament to be of good courage. You've heard that. To be fixed like men, do not be unstable. That's what the Bible says. We're told to be bold. We're told to live an uncompromising life for Christ. And we could turn to a number of passages, but just turn over to the, the book of Colossians chapter 2. And just look at verse 5, because it's so common. I mean, we could spend all day just talking about that. But look at chapter 2, verse 5. And Paul's writing to the church of Colossae, and we went over this when we went through the book of Colossians. But look at what verse 5 says. He says, for though I am absent in the flesh, in other words, I'm not with you. I'm, I'm, I'm absent. I'm not, I can't be there physically with you right now. That's what Paul's saying. He says, yet I am with you in spirit. What's he mean by that? He means, you know what, you're always on my heart. You know, it's kind of like the relative who lives back east or lives in another part of the world you know, and you love them dearly and you'd love to spend time with them, but you know what? You can't. Because physically they're not where you are and you're not where they are. But you would say that, you know what? You're always on my heart. Um, I'm with you in spirit. And that's kind of the idea. You're always on my mind. And then he goes in and he says, here's what my desire is for you. He says, rejoicing to see your good order, or, or discipline is the idea, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ or the stability of your faith in Christ. You know what? Nothing brings joy to uh, someone who's discipling somebody or seeing somebody somebody grow in their faith in the Lord to see that, that, that person who was once all over the map begin to draw some discipline in their life and, and to begin to have some stability in their, their Christian walk. It really brings joy to that, to, to where they become stable in their faith. They're unwavering in their faith. They have a strong faith. You know, in any of us, I think that no Christ would probably personally have to admit that we wish our faith was stronger than what it was. We always wish our faith was stronger than what it was. None of us are, uh, have that that ability or that, that, uh, uh, you know, just ability to stand against anything all the time 100%. We just don't have that. And so we want to be stable through times. None of us, I think, are, are looking at our Christian walk and saying, man, I can't wait to be stumbling and bumbling around you know, in my faith, teetering, tottering here and there, going to and fro, not knowing where I'm going. I can't wait for that to happen in my Christian walk. No, that's not what we desire. We desire stability. We desire um, some stableness in our Christian experience. We desire to be firm. We desire to be strong, like Christ was. I don't think there's anybody here this morning who knows Christ that would say, oh, wait, I can't wait to be victimized by this next difficulty that comes along. Or I can't wait to be knocked over by the troubles and the battles and and trials and problems in life. That just makes my day. When that happens, I'm just happy. No. This is not the way it is. Um, I don't think we like it when we're defeated by temptation and we give in to sin because of the world around us and the flesh and the devil trips us up. It causes us to sin at times. And I don't think any of us would say anything other than the Apostle Paul when he saw sin in his own life. And he says, you know what? When I sin, when I do that thing, I don't want to do it. He says, the thing I, I hate the most, I do. And that's that, that tension in the Christian walk. I think we would all like to be firm and strong. We'd We must recognize that it's It's not an easy process, because when you came to Christ, you may not realize this, but you may, Uh, you basically signed up for the Lord's army. And when you sign up for the Lord's army, you're going to do battle in this world every day. And you stop and you think of some of the men and women who are deployed abroad, and they're in firefights sometimes daily. You know, I don't think that they're, you know, sitting in their bunker when when uh, the enemy's shooting at them thinking, oh man, I wish I had that new Nintendo game, or boy, I, you know, I, I hope so and so is doing good at home, or I hope this, no, they're focused like a laser beam on their mission, which in their case would be kill the enemy before they kill you. And if they deviate from that, they may end up dead. And see, they're in a war. And sometimes when you're in a war, you know, you just look at 9-11, when, when our, the Twin Towers were attacked and all that, you know. A war has a way of bringing reality to, to things. I was writing a little thing the other day, just kind of, just uh, for a newsletter we're going to be putting out. And, and I was thinking, you know, to kind of put at the top of the page, I put reality check. And I started sitting there, I sitting, well, the women were having their breakfast, I didn't even need to do, so I just started typing at the computer. And I started thinking, you know what? This is kind of interesting that we'll turn on a television show that's supposed to be, quote, a reality-based show. And sometimes we actually believe this is reality. You know, we, we watch, uh, what's the gal, the 30-minute meal gal? Rachel Ray, you know, come out there and you know do her little thing in 30 minutes and she's got this wonderful meal. Have you ever tried that, honestly? Have you ever really tried it? I mean, you know, maybe, possibly, if I had the backup that she had, if I had sous chefs coming out of my ears, you know, cutting up little onions so they're in a nice little glass bowl, so she just dumps them in there. You know, if I had all that, maybe I could do that in 30 minutes. But I'll tell you what, I've tried it. It doesn't work. Because it's not reality. Okay, I mean, I'm lucky if I can make a peanut butter jelly sandwich in 30 minutes. Not really, but, you know. You know. And yet, yet, we sit there and we turn the TV on and we think, wow, that's, that's interesting. Um, reality. Or, or, you know, for those of you men who might, might be in the Norm Abrams, you know, the, the old Yankee workshop, you know, this guy comes on the screen and, you know, after a 10 minute introduction where he goes to some factory and some old house or whatever, sees a piece of furniture, and by the end of the show, he's got the thing made. Oh, it's reality. Yeah, no, it's not. We've been duped into believing it's reality. So when I'm in my garage and, you know, I'm trying to put a little line in a piece of wood with my router and I got to change the bit, I don't have the luxury of just grabbing the next router with the bit already in and just, hey, we're good to go, you know, or move to the next table saw. I mean, no, all that stuff takes time. And so I think sometimes when we're, when we're in this world, we're, we're kind of being duped into, you know what, look around us and we're believing that this is reality. When in fact it's not. We're in a war. And war has a way of bringing reality out. After 9-11, you remember all the politicians on the you know, steps singing Kumbaya and holding hands. You know, I mean, we all knew that wouldn't last very long. Yeah. But you know what? In a way, it gave a little bit of a reality check. Hey, you know what? We're under attack. It's time to drop the games and, and get something done here. And sure, it didn't last very long, but the point is, is when we're in war, it has a way of bringing things kind of to the surface. And all of a sudden, we, we step back and we go, well, wow, is this really that important? What is really important? And when God saved us, he called us into his army, and he said, your sole task will be to share this gospel with those around you and live a life that's undaunting, that's that's unwavering. So that people will look at you and say, wow, there's something different here. You don't just blend in with the rest of the world. So we all desire to be that firm, strong, faithful person. But really, we're saved to conflict. We're saved to war. We're called to be in an arm in an army that does battle with the supernatural. And so when we look at Philippians four one, that's why he says there, you know what? You have to stand firm or stand fast in the Lord. Because our that's our, our spiritual military duty. I watched a thing the other day on the military channel and, and it was a, a battle of something, but it was these guys, these Marines that were up on this hill and they were trying to their helicopter crashed. And another group came to help them out, and they had this bunker up on top of the mountain. If you watch that, you've probably seen it. It's been on a million times, but I watch it every time it's on because it's just amazing to me. And, you know, it's not reality. It's a reenactment. But it's amazing how, you know, these guys are up in this bunker shooting at them. And they are it's just a kind of a mound that they're up on top of. And they call in these, these jets to kind of strafe the, the bunker. And they do it several times, and the guys keep on shooting at them. And they're thinking, okay, you know what, drop the bombs. You've got to drop the bombs, the the guns aren't working. And they were so close that they have a thing they call danger close. And the, the leading guy on the ground has to call this in because they could lose their lives. I mean, this bomb could literally kill them as it kills the enemy. But they were willing to take drastic measures because there was nothing else to do and there was kind of a a willingness. They weren't willing to back away from this. Their goal was to take these guys out, and that's what they did. And that's the kind of, I guess, mentality that we have to have in our Christian walk. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and say, well, gee, that's nice, Steve. You know, I appreciate the encouragement to stand firm and be strong and be bold and be courageous and be stable. But frankly, you haven't told me how. (laughs) You haven't told me how. How do we reach that kind of stability? Matter of fact, if you're looking around at Christians around you this morning, you might assume that some are more stable in their spiritual walks than others. And you know what? That's a correct assumption to make. Some appear very stable. And some appear very unstable. And you have all kinds in between those two extremes. Maybe a feeling in your heart this morning that you're saying, you know what? I'm just a <laughs> I was just born this way. I'm just unstable in general. Well, I want to make sure that you understand this morning genetics have nothing to do with our spiritual resources that we have in Christ. Absolutely nothing. It's not something you've inherited. The instability that you may have, it's a spiritual issue. And there's no mystery, really, in the Word of God to understanding why some people are stable in spiritual things and some people are not. Why some people are mature in Christ and some people are very immature in Christ. Why some people hold out through trials and temptations and other people just cave every time it comes around. Why some people are always defeated in their Christian walk and why others are always just triumphing gloriously. There's no mystery there why that happens. It's just a problem that can be solved by the development of spiritual stability in your life through principles that God's word lays out for us. You may be weak in faith, you may be unstable, you may be a new Christian and there's a lot of a certain amount of instability in that. But I want you to know this morning that God lays out for us in His Word a process that is clearly outlined for us for, to obtain spiritual stability. It's associated with discipline, it's associated with, with, with taking that stand and making that stand, as Colossians 2 5 uh, just said. But I want you to understand this morning that it's possible in Christ to have a stable walk. You have to understand that in order to be spiritually stable and not to be knocked over by all these things that come our way daily, whether it's persecution by hostile people around you, whether it's temptation by Satan or the flesh or the world or whatever, whether it's trials or troubles, there are principles that help us, that enable us to become strong. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to begin to look at those in verses 2 to 9. Now you notice in verse 1 there last week, he says, so stand fast in the Lord. And we we concentrated on that little word, so, and we said, that's really the idea that, you know what, here's here's what I'm going to tell you how to do it. He says, basically, this is the way you are to stand firm in the Lord. And then he outlines in verses 2 to 9 how to do it. So he's saying to the Philippians, you know what? You've got to be firm in the Lord. You've got to be resolutely stable as Christians. You must do it. And he gives us a series of principles. And we want to look at at the first one, the first principle. And the first principle we see in verse 2. And I put it there in your, your outline. Principle number one is maintain or cultivate harmony or peace in the fellowship. By cultivating harmony or peace in the fellowship of love. That's that's really what we need to do. We need to maintain or cultivate harmony or peace in the fellowship of love. Now let's look at this and see where we get this from. Um, I'm convinced that when we pursue spiritual stability, even as Paul did, um, it's, it's really dependent on associations that we have. Sometimes when you associate with unstable people, you're going to be unstable. That's just the way it is. And so it's all about holding on to people. It's all about accountability. It's all about caring. It's about mutual love, harmony, and peace. And this is where he goes with this. And this is what he says in verse 2. He says, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life." Now it's kind of interesting when Paul identifies this because he identifies a conflict here. He's saying, hey, red flag, there's, there's a problem here in this church. Um, he's not vague about it. Uh, he names the two women who are the problem. Um, and then he names a person, which we're going to talk a little bit about, to help this problem out. He's very specific and what he's after here is unity in the church, harmony in the church amongst the people with the relationships. So there's, there's potential discords of, of, you know, at different levels within the church, and, and they threaten the purity of the church. And you have to remember, when a church is generally unstable, when there's generally conflict, a lot of conflict in a church, it, it generates instability in the whole church, not just between those two people. And then on the other hand, when there's unity and there's oneness and peace and harmony and all that, then everybody enjoys that stability that's the result of that. And so Paul knows that these two women, Yodi and and Syntyche, they're having a major conflict. And he's saying, you know what, this can threaten the spiritual stability of the church, of believers throughout the whole congregation, because they'll fall to all kinds of sins, You know, whatever it might be, negative attitudes, bitterness, revenge, hostility, unforgiveness, pride, you can go on and on. Paul knows that, and so he knows when people make peace and harmony with one another, and they cultivate that relationship, that that unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, as Paul calls it, there will be stability throughout the whole church. It's as if the general strength of a church becomes the individual strength. If this morning we're here all immature believers and insta- unstable in our faith, how would we expect our church to be? It's going to be immature and unstable in our faith. And so you know, we all participate to that. We all participate in that. The general strength becomes the individual strength. went down to pick up my wife this last week at work and they had the... The, uh, I don't know what they're called, those big long boats, out on uh, one of the places down there on Redwood Shores, with all the guys, p- women paddling and stuff. And I'm thinking, you know what, that's kind of a good example. Because you know they each have a, a, a row, I think, on one side or maybe, or on one side or the other, maybe they have two, I don't know. But if, if one of them just decides, you know what, my, arm, my right arm's getting tired, I'm not going to do it anymore, what's going to happen? Well, boat's going to go off course. All right, even though they may be very strong individuals, but if one of them messes up, if one of them goes a certain way, it affects the whole boat. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. And he wants us to, to, to make sure that our environment in our church is one of, of spiritual unity and peace and harmony. We're to support the weak. We're, we're to lift up the fallen. We're to restore the broken. Those who were overtaken in the sin, We're to demonstrate love toward them. Not harshness. We're to demonstrate grace because we're seeking restoration. We're seeking repentance. And that's what he's kind of calling for here. I put there in your outline, I think I put this, spiritual stability is related to the attitudes that you have. It's not related to your circumstances. It's related to how you think. That's a key thing. In other words, I can't this morning say, oh, you know what, here, just do this ABC and you'll have st- spiritual stability in your life. It doesn't work that way. It's related to your attitudes. It's related to your to your to how you think. It's not related to your circumstances. So you can be going through major problems at work and still have spiritual stability. And even more importantly, I think it's directly related, not how you think about yourself, We're so much into ourselves, we think, oh yeah, how do I think about myself? He's not talking about that. I think you'll have spiritual stability when you stop and you say, you know what? It's not about me, it's about God. What's my attitude toward God? What do I think about God? And when you learn to react properly, when you learn to react the way God would react, not that God reacts, that's the key. We want to be people that act, not react. And so it's, it's just an important thing. And he even goes down, look at verse 8. If you wonder where I'm getting this, in verse 8 he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, and he goes through this whole thing, this whole list of things. Why? Because it's important what you're dwelling on. It's important what you're thinking. And then at the end he says what? Let your mind dwell or think on these things. And it's not about what you think about yourself. It's not about what you think about your problem. It's how you think about God that controls your spiritual stability. It really is. Everything revolves itself around your theology, around what you think your your God is like, and how you think about God will really control your spiritual life in every dimension. He uses that word in verse 2, urge. He says, I implore or I urge. It has the idea of calling... uh, alongside of it's the same word that we get the, the word paraclete from referring to the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel it means to, to plead or to beg or to encourage or to help and he says I want to plead with these two women you and incentive to please live in harmony in the Lord now you know Paul is an incredible theologian and you know he's gone through incredible depth in this book up to this point but basically, what he's saying here is very, uh, very simple. He says, basically, you know what? There's these two women. Tell them to get their act together. That's kind of the idea. Get your act together. We know that they weren't disagreeing over something of theology, because Paul would jump right in there and say, okay, you know, you owe you. you think this, and then you think this. Well, here's the right thing to think. Go this way. That's just the way Paul always does it. He always confronts. Any false teaching. We know that they weren't false teaching. They weren't false teachers. They weren't teaching a false gospel or false doctrines, anything like that. And yet, there were some very serious problems here with these two women. We know that they were probably plugged into the church there in some way. Um, we know that they were involved. And so he, he basically says you know what you need to get your act together that's kind of what he's telling them and he says I want you to have harmony in the Lord And so it wasn't a doctrine issue it was these were two ladies that were committed to the, the church they weren't really um, you know out there from the outside coming in and 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 doing something that was wrong um, We know that they weren't creating havoc in the church. They just were disagreeing on something. We're not really told what it is. And so he simply says to them, you know what? You should live in harmony. Let them live in harmony. Because if they don't, it's going to affect your whole church. It's going to affect the whole Philippian church. Notice he says to live in harmony what? In the Lord. And I think that that part of that be of the same mind in the Lord. That's what he's saying. Um, if they just get right with the Lord, it will solve the problem. Do you ever realize that? Do you ever realize when you have a problem with somebody, maybe you have an issue with somebody, a gripe or a complaint or whatever, and you begin to kind of harvest some bitterness or an attitude in your own heart against that person? Immediately, what do we do? Oh, we got to talk to that person. We got to go, you know, and make everything right. Now, the first thing you should do is go to the Lord. Because really, you know what? Your problem is with the Lord. And that's just, it's just working itself out with this other person. For some reason, you have an issue with the Lord. Because when two people are right with the Lord, generally, they're right with each other. I know that's true in our marriage. When we're both right with the Lord, generally, we're right with each other. But when one of us isn't right with the Lord, seems to be me more than my wife on occasion you know what it's not cool between us and God's got to do a work in my heart or God's got to do a work in her heart and then you know we go to the Lord and then all of a sudden there's harmony and there's peace there see if you're walking in the spirit I'm right with the Lord and if you're walking in the spirit and you're right with the Lord you're going to get along just great that's just the way it is. There's not going to be a problem. And then he goes even a step further here. And he's so concerned about this, he doesn't just urge them to get together. Um, now, can you, just for a second, remember this is a letter that Paul wrote to this church. It's a letter. It would be like me standing up here and opening a piece of mail from one of our missionaries and saying, hey, uh, Brother Nelson sends his love, and, and I start reading a letter to you. Only in the letter, Paul heard that there's some problems within the church. And you notice, Paul doesn't really uh, you know, beat around the bush here. The elders probably got up in the church and they began to read Paul's letter and you can just imagine Yodi and sitting out there. Oh, isn't that sweet? Paul wrote us a letter. Because you know what? People that have issues with each other a lot of times aren't even aware of it. Because they they put up such a barrier, they put up such a it's just a a wall there. That they're just willing to live with the, the distance in their relationship and you know, that's just that person I don't get along with. I don't click with that person, and that's just the way it's going to be sure these two women were involved in ministry. They were doing whatever in the church. They were helping Paul, he says. That they helped them. They labored with me in the gospel. These weren't people that just came to church and pointed their finger at other people and, and didn't do anything. These were people who were involved. And the elders were up there reading a letter from Paul. And these two ladies are sitting there, oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet? And he comes to the last little section of the letter. And he says, I implore you, you odia, and I implore cintic, to be of the same mind in the Lord. I mean, talk about a direct hit. And then he goes a step further and he says, I also urge you, true companion, true comrades, I ask you to help these people. So right there in the letter as they're reading it, He's being read to the people, and he says, "You know what?" He asks. I believe it's a it's a it's an individual. I believe it's a man to help these women get harmony. And I'll explain that to you in a second. It's part of the mutual ministry of the church. He doesn't ask the pastor. He doesn't ask even probably the elders here. Obviously, they dropped the ball because this, they allowed this to go on. He had to ask somebody else within the congregation to deal with it, and. What I want to focus in on is that that word, their true companion or true comrade, sounds kind of like something you'd read about in an old war movie or something, comrade, you know. But the Greek word is very specific, and the Greek word I spelled it out there for you in your in your uh, uh, outline. It's translated yoke fellow or someone who carries a common load, a yoke. Um, You know, too often pull that, and it's pulling the same load. It has that idea. It's someone that's your partner in something, an endeavor, an enterprise. So if you translate it, you can take that that word, that Greek word there, and you can say, you know, my fellow yoke fellow or whatever. But it seems kind of odd, because why wouldn't he use the individual's name? He uses Clement's name. He uses Yodi's name. He uses Syndic's name. So that seems a little odd that... He would just say, "Oh yeah," and you yoke fellow man, or whatever. You know, he, he wouldn't say that. He wouldn't have forgotten the guy's name because he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So why wouldn't he put his name in here? Some people believe that he's talking about the whole church, um, the whole the whole church, the the yoke fellow of the whole church. But you know what? It's a singular but it is a collective noun involving the whole church. And he says, "I ask all of you to help these women." That's a possibility. But one commentator brings out a, an interesting point, and I think this is kind of where I fall on this. If you trans if you don't translate this this word at all in the Greek and just use it the way it's spelled out there, syzigos, the it could actually be a person Paul could actually be referring to somebody named Syzygous here. And his name would mean yoke fellow. His name would mean, you know, fellow laborer. He may have been one of the elders. We don't know. We don't know who this guy is. We just know that Paul apparently points to this individual and says, these women need some help, and you're the man to do it. And if you stop and you think of it that way, which isn't uncommon, you think of Barnabas. What did his name mean? Encouragement, right? Onesimus? I mean, the same thing. I mean, it's useful. You know, a lot of times they would name people after maybe a characteristic they have or whatever, or they just ended up being that way. Well, a lot of people believe that this is, is an individual. It's not just, you know, a, a general term here. So he could be referring to somebody, an individual called Syzygis, and he says, look, I want you to help these women. Stand firm. How are you going to do that? Well, you've got to help each other. You have to be a conflict resolver. You have to be a peacemaker. I remember when I was a youth pastor, young people used to come to me all the time, oh, you don't understand my parents, and they'd start whining and whining about their relationship with their, their mom and dad. And I'd always tell them the same thing. I said, you know what, just go home and be a peacemaker in your home. Well, what do you mean by that? Just do what you're told to do. And I guarantee your parents' attitude will change toward you. Well, what do you mean? Okay, this isn't rocket science. When mom says, do the dishes, just do the dishes. I mean, what, did it take you five, ten minutes? You a big family, maybe 20? When mom says, take out the garbage, just get up and take out the garbage. When dad says, go mow the lawn, go mow the lawn. Just be obedient. Just do what you're told to do when you're told to do it. But you know, that comes hard. Yeah, I will, I will. You know, I'm just going to finish this show here. Yeah, I'm doing something else. You know. And that, you know, that just creates havoc. That's not being a peacemaker. Well, it's the same thing within the church, it's the same thing when it comes to relationships in general, whether it be marriage or otherwise. Maybe at work, just seek to be a peacemaker. Just do what you're told to do, and do it as on the Lord, not so you get a pat on the back. Do it on the Lord, and you watch how the dynamics change. Now, this church was obviously going through a struggle. And these two women, it was just kind of flushing itself out in their relationship. And he says, I want you to be of the same mind. I want you to to, to be of the the same, kind of focused on the same things. And when it boils down, what should we be focused on? We should be focused on Christ. The Bible's full of of commands to, you know what, you don't look out for your own interests, right? You look out for the interests of those around you. Well, Well, that changes the whole dynamic in a situation if you're not after your pound of flesh all of a sudden you're willing to give up a pound of flesh to make somebody else happy well that changes the whole thing and so he's sharing with them that you know they need some help to to deal with this but that's the, the, the first principle that's here and he even goes on and he says you know what they've labored with me, he, he doesn't criticize them. So it probably wasn't even that big of a deal, but it had potential to become a big deal. So he says, "You know what? Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life." Kind of reminds them, you know, these these two individuals are believers. They are Christians. They do mean something to God. I mean, He did die for them too. Sometimes within the church, we put up these walls within our relationships as if, you know, we're the only one that God died for and nobody else is important. But that's not true. In other words, he's saying, you know what? They're on the team. They're believers. They're faithful servants. They're workers. So he's saying, do whatever you have to do, but deal with it. Notice there the reference to the book of life. I mean, that's where God wrote down in eternity past the names of all His elect. You know, it was interesting, this morning we were praying, and I can't remember who it was, but somebody made mention of the fact that you know this morning people will be um, coming to Christ. And they said their, their names will be written in the book of life. And I sat there and I thought, you know what? They already are. It's like God is just opening up the book and He's revealing that their name is in there. Because those names were written in the book of life in eternity past. Isn't that incredible? Think that God, before the foundation of the world, set His love on us in such a divine way that, that one day He was going to take the blinders off our eyes and we would realize, wow, you know what? I need Christ. I need to come to Christ. But in His mind, we're already there. That's that's incredible to me. And so he says, make sure you stand firm with these folks. There's got to be love amongst them. There's got to be harmony. And you need to, to work this out. Because I can tell you, when a church becomes unstable and fractured, and I, it's just ugly. It just gets ugly really quick. There's a lack of forgiveness. There's a bitterness that grows up. There's negative spirits that just you know take over the place. And so we always want to make sure... That we're, we're willing to go forth in, in love and harmony and peace with other people. That's one of the first principles. And the only way you can do that is in the Lord. Be of have the same mind in the Lord. You can't do this on your own. I know I can't. I mean, frankly, there's some people that I'm drawn to. There's some people I can talk to all day. And I'm just being honest. There's other people, man, I want to run the other way when they start coming. That's the way we all are. Let's just be honest. We're all that way. We're attracted to certain personalities or or whatever. But you know what? In the Lord, God gives you the love for that and and God can give you the same mind, that that harmony for that person. That's what it's all about. Now on to the second point. He says in verse 4, he says, rejoice always in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So the, the, the first principle there is, you know what? You need to cultivate a, kind of an atmosphere, a, a harmony, a peace through love. That's how you have to do it. You can't do it any other way, through Christ, through the Spirit. And then secondly, he says, if you want to have some stability in your life, you have to maintain the spirit of joy. You have to maintain A spirit of joy. And you know what? This is probably one of the strongest stabilizing factors in a Christian's life. If they can get this. If they can come to understand this. Because you know what? As believers and as just individuals, as people, we tend to be victimized by our circumstances. That's just who we are. We have our highs. We have our lows. We have our highs. We have our lows. We fluctuate all over the map. And it's all dependent on how the stuff in our life is going. The checkbook balances this month. Hey, great! Doesn't? Oh man, just having a horrible time. Got that promotion at work. Everything's great. Lost my job. Ugh. You know, if there's calm in your life, if things are just kind of going along, if everything's going the way that we would like it to go, then it's kind of a peaceful time. Then we make the decision. Well, now I can do this. Rejoice in the Lord. I mean, that makes sense. But if all that stuff in our life begins to disintegrate and kinda just fall apart, then what do we do? We lose it. See, that's not what he's saying here. That has nothing to do with what he's talking about. You know when he says there in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always? Do you understand that's a command? That's a command. That's that's not an option. He's not saying, by the way, when you feel happy, you might want to rejoice in the Lord. That's not what he's saying. And somebody would say, well, how in the world can you command somebody to rejoice? How can you go up to somebody and say, rejoice? What does that look like? What do they do? Well, look at what he says. What's he say? Does he just say rejoice? No. He says rejoice in the Lord. He says rejoice in the Lord. I don't know about you, but I can't rejoice in my circumstances 24-7. Or most of the time even seems like chaos a lot of the time. I can't rejoice in the way things are going in this world. You look around, it's like, man, you get depressed. I can't even rejoice in in spiritual accomplishments. Because I don't have any spiritual accomplishments if it wasn't for the grace of God. I mean, when I look at my life, all I see is failures. I don't rejoice in that. So if I'm going to rejoice in something, it's not going to be me, that's for sure. You say, well, don't you want to look at other people and rejoice in them? No. Not that they're not nice people. But you know what? I've burned, been burned many times. I've been let down. I've been you know, disappointed with a lot of people, as probably they have been with me. So I, I don't want to tie my joy to an individual, to a person. How about in success when when everything's going fine and you're successful in your job or your ministry or whatever? I don't want to tie my joy to that because that could all end tomorrow. That could be gone tomorrow. So what Paul says is, you know what? Beloved, you need to rejoice in the Lord because you know what? He doesn't come and go. There's stability there. He stays. He never wavers, the Bible says. He never changes. You see, if we believe in the Lord and we rejoice in the Lord, then you know what? Our faith is going to be strong because we know who He is. It doesn't matter what our circumstances are. It's irrelevant. That's really tied to what I said at the very beginning this morning. I said st- spiritual stability is directly tied to how you think about God. God. You want to be spiritually stable in your Christian walk? Then stop and start thinking correctly about the God that you love and serve and who died for you. Show me a person who isn't stable and I'll show you a person who has a, a skewed view of God, a skewed understanding of God. That's why a lot of times these people have problems and problems and problems. They're always worrying about this and that. They're always struggling with these little problems in life. They're always running around looking for some quick fix, some little book or seminar or tape or psychiatrist or counselor, whatever it is to get a fix in their life so that they don't have these problems anymore. A lot of times, you know what? They need to stop and go back and read through the book of Psalms. Just begin to read through the book of Psalms. Do them a lot of good. You know, there's there's just, I think, certain ways to approach things. I mean, why do you think God gave the book of Psalms to the people of Israel? They're in a kind of poetic form, in a, in a meter. They can be easily memorized. They can be set to music. They can be easily remembered. There's scripture. They can be an encouragement to you. They would know God better as a result of that. And when they knew who God was, everything else seemed to be insignificant because they were rejoicing in the Lord. If you don't know much about the Lord, it's tough to rejoice in the Lord. The early church even rejoiced when they suffered because they said they were so happy. Acts 5.41, it says, to have been counted worthy, to have suffered for such a worthy name. continual, habitual joy should mark us. And so Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I repeat it, Rejoice in the Lord in case you missed it. And that's what Romans 14.17 says, The kingdom is made up of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, you can't have joy without the Spirit of God in your life. You can't have joy unless you've made that commitment to Him and, and received His forgiveness and His grace. And he's given you the Spirit of God to reside within you you say "Well, okay well so I think about God what do I have to rejoice about just in closing I'll just give you a couple things first of all he's sovereign over everything the Bible says that God is sovereign over everything and to me that's that's so important that's right down to the basics of theology And you know what? When you have that kind of God and you have that kind of thinking about your God, you can't steal your joy because you realize that God is in charge of everything. So when you're driving down the freeway and you have a flat tire and you're out there in the rain fixing the tire, can you rejoice in that? Well, you can say, you know what? God allowed this to happen for some reason because He surely could have prevented it. I don't know why, but I'm here changing my flat tire in the rain. Praise God. And you realize you move to the next thing. I think the single greatest truth I know about God as a believer is that He's sovereign. He's in charge of everything. Nothing happens out of His control, the Bible says. He controls it all, absolutely all of it. I mean, just go through Psalm 139. I mean, when you read that, you know, He knows when you're sitting down. He knows when you're rising up. He knows what you're going to say before you even say it. He knows the way you're going to walk and He holds every part of your life in absolute, total control. What a tremendous truth. You're not just rejoicing in God, you're rejoicing in a sovereign God. He he goes on there and He says, you know, I mean, think about this. When you realize that God is loving, that God is wise, that God has a... Total understanding of every aspect of your life. I mean, that changes the whole approach to things for me. Think about it this way. Why do you have joy unspeakable and full of glory? First of all, because everything in my life is controlled by God. He says I'm one of His children. Secondly, because God saved me. And He made me His own child. And He promised to give me an inheritance in Christ. That's all right there in the Bible. I'm His child; I belong to Him, and I'm going to rejoice because Jesus Christ is coming someday, and He's going to take me to be with Him. And right now, the Bible even says that He's preparing a place for me. I rejoice because my God's able to to supply all my needs, everything I need. He'll supply it according to His riches. In Christ Jesus. God doesn't look to me and say, okay, Steve, how much you got in your wallet there? Oh, you know, buck fifty. I don't know. Okay, well, that's all I can help you with. No. He says, I'm not gonna read. I'm not gonna supply what you need according to your own riches, but I'm gonna supply them according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And the last time I checked, you know, he's got a pretty good stash. Don't have to worry about him running out of things to supply my needs. I'm going to rejoice because I'm being used by God to serve the one I love. We should all count that a privilege. We should all rejoice in the fact that God has included us in this thing called ministry to share the gospel with those around us who have yet to hear and to see them come to Christ. I rejoice in the fact that I don't have to get in line to... Get an audience with my God. Called the other day. I Got my car serviced, so I took it down there. Right, Boardwalk Chevrolet, thinking, hey, no problem. You know, drive down there. The car was having the problem. Right then, right then, and there, you know, it's one of those electrical things. So you had to take it in. So I take it in there, park it there, let it running because it has a problem starting. Go into the service place and go, yeah, my car's here, and uh, you know, I was just wondering if somebody can look at it real quick. And and uh, you know, oh, okay, well, uh, you can leave it here, but it's, it's going to be two days. like, Two days? I'm thinking, run running. I'm not going to just take it in and leave it there. Well, isn't there another way? Well, no, it's going to take two days. I mean, you can call and make an appointment, but it would probably still take two days. So I'm going, wow, okay. You know, and I'm thinking, man, I thank God that I don't have to get in line. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if, if when you went to prayer? I mean, it was like, okay, wait a minute. You know, you're behind so-and-so. Last night we went out to eat with some friends. And we're sitting in this restaurant, and you know, they said 45 minutes. I'm going this food better be good. 45 minutes, you know, I don't ever wait 45 minutes for nothing. And it was. But, you know, cuz I was so hungry by the time I got there, you know, they could have fed me cardboard and I ate it. But you know, we're sitting there and we're talking and you know, it's like, okay, it's been 30 minutes, you know. She said 45 minutes, okay. And we, you know, it's like 35 minutes. You know, we're counting down, you know. The minutes almost. And you have this little pager thing. We're seeing other people get up and get their tables. And I keep on going, well, that person was, I, I, you know, I watch this kind of stuff. They came in at, or before us. She came in after us, but I heard her say that she had an, a, a, a reservation, so that's okay. You know, you want to make sure that you're, nobody's cutting in front of you, you know? I mean, you need your food. And, you know, finally we got the meal and everything. We had a, a great time. But thank God we don't have to get in line when we go to God in prayer. I mean, somebody can call you on the phone from the East Coast and say, Hey, you know what? We're just in a a train wreck. Can you pray for us? And we could pray for them right then and there, and God could answer that prayer. Because we have instant access to God. And the God of the universe listens to everything I have to say. It's not like us husbands sometimes, you know, after the first ten words, you know, we just kind of tune tune the spouse out. It's, uh-uh, uh uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, okay. You know, you mute the, the golf channel, whatever you're watching, but you're still watching it. You're not listening to them at all. You know, they could say, what am I saying? And you're like, I have the slightest idea. God's not like that. He listens to everything we have to say. Even if it's a long conversation. Even if it's things that maybe he doesn't want to hear. Maybe we're griping. Maybe we're there just pouring our heart out to God. He doesn't say, you know what, I've heard enough of this. <laughs> he doesn't do that. The door is always open. One of the last reasons that we can have joy in our God is because death is gain. You know, we really have to understand this, beloved. And this is, this is where I think this whole reality thing, we've kind of been duped in this, this world in which we live to believe that, you know, this is what it's all about. The latest little gadget, the, the the best promotion at work, you know, drive the best car, live in the best neighborhood, all this stuff, and you know, go to the best schools, and you've got to provide all this stuff and you know, and, and all our focus is on that. I'm not saying we shouldn't plan and we shouldn't be good stewards of what God's entrusted to us. But you know what? I can't wait for the day that He takes me home, that I'm out of here. And I think sometimes we have so much garbage in our lives and we're clinging on to so many things occasionally might say, oh, I don't want to go yet I'd rather do this first I thank God that when I die it's gain <laughs> doesn't matter uh, you know I don't care take me however you want Lord whenever you want it's in his hands but I thank God that in Christ I can look forward to that is is finally being with the one who saved me face to face that's spiritual stability that kind of joy That kind of loving, mutual harmony in relationships, that's just the first step. But it's directly related to those two. And I pray that we would stop and ask ourselves, why would we compromise? God is in control. Why would we waver in our faith? God loves us enough to die for us. Why would we doubt? How can I doubt a God that so clearly revealed to me in scripture? Let's close in a word of prayer we'll be dismissed with a song. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and we thank you, Lord, for just that command to rejoice in you. Not sometimes, not when we feel like it, but always. And again, I will say rejoice. Lord, I pray that we would have our proper understanding of what it means to rejoice in the Lord. Lord, you've, you've saved us from a wretched life. God, none of us here this morning would be anywhere if it wasn't for you. Yeah, we may be happy out there in the world playing with sin and doing what the world does, but Lord, there'd come a day when all that would be left behind. And without you, we're definitely wanting in the balances. And Father, I just thank you that that Jesus jumped over to my side of the, the scales and tipped them in my favor. Not because of who I am, but because of who you are. Because of your grace and your mercy. Lord, help us not to collapse under persecution or hostility or rejection or intimidation. Help us not to fall into sin. We want to be like Daniel. He didn't know how to compromise because he knew too much about his God. And Lord, I pray that even this morning that you would give us a greater knowledge of you. A greater experience of that love and that joy which you grant to your faithful children. Father, if there's anybody here this morning who's yet to taste of that heavenly gift of Christ, who's yet to acknowledge their sin before a holy God, I pray that they would realize it's not too late. Lord, that you're always open to someone who comes in humility and is willing to acknowledge their need of a Savior. And so, Father, we pray this morning, if that's the case, that those people would cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to put my faith and trust in the one who died for me, Christ, Jesus, our Savior. when I pray that as believers, we'd have a boldness in our walk, in our talk, in our life. Lord, that there'd be sincerity in our faith, So, Father, we just thank you. We praise you this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.